We're continuing where we left off, and with the it is eight twenty three two thousand twenty, and we're continuing with the thought of the week and prayer. The thought of the week, specifically, as we journey into the Father's heart, I want to be clear about what is found there. We might easily get the impression that it is just unconditional love there. We might just have thought that his, that he is this loving daddy figure that opens his arms of love and acceptance for us all. This is what can happen when we take the father's metaphor too, metaphor too far. All along the way, to God's, to, to the Father's heart, our information and terminology has been more and more refined so that we are able to understand him better. When we get there, we shall see all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's found in Colossians 2, 3. What is the heart, what is at the heart of the Father is really something that will lead us to this eternal state. Only then can we experience the fullness of, can we experience the fullness of his plan. For now we can know what he revealed and yearned like the apostle. But we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eager, eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8.23. So I recognize the limitations and accept them and will not go beyond what is revealed. When we see the Father's heart, we find very detailed and organized and an organized master plan. First, learning the knowledge of the plan is imperative. Beyond that, we can explore the motivations that led to the decisions made by the Father. Hmm. Imagine that we are examining the motives of God. For commentary, I'd like to go back to Romans 8.23, where it says, uh, For now, we can know that he revealed and yearn like the apostle, but it says, Romans 8, 23, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit and grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I think scripture is telling us um, we, have a, we have the Father's detailed plan, which for me is every day being unfolded as I see truth. But I think the, 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 the lesson here is not to go beyond what is written. And it says we eagerly wait for the sons of God to be revealed. And the redemption of our bodies is our resurrection bodies, which we will receive in the eternal state. So I think the, there's a warning here, as this scripture has always 
blast off all kinds of things for me, that this is something very glorious, and I don't know, in our mind, can we conceive everything that God has prepared for the sons of God. This is my commentary, and I'll turn this over to Dwight for prayer. Thank you very much, Fred. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for our families, our extended families, and Church Universal, our church, and would like to know if there are any special requests above and beyond that. Yeah, pray for Dwight to get well as from his fall. I'd like to pray, lift up prayer for my immediate family. Absolutely, Fred. And the Maya family. Mm -hmm. And all our families, of course. All right, let us bow our heads before God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for all of us on this call that we would be focused in, in what you have to reveal to us. We are ever learning. Let us not cease to be motivated by love in what we, in what you present to us. And let our focus be diligent in our minds. I pray for our Word of Truth Church beyond this call as well, that all would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I pray also for the Church Universal, the entire body of Christ that is in this world. It is not just us, but we are on the same mission, the mission to know the Father's plan, the detail of his master plan for us. And I pray also for the victim of all these disasters in this world, whether it's governmental oppression, COVID-19, earthquakes, fires, etc. There's just no end the disasters and the falling apart of this world. And we know, Father, that you have a plan to restore a new heaven and a new earth. But let our focus be on the battleground that we stand on now in the church. And let us take our position boldly and put on the armor of God. I pray for Dwight to get better after his fall on his bike, his wrist and and that scab may, may be healing. I pray also for our immediate and extended family, even families that are not blood-related, but those that we know who are dear to our hearts, including the, uh, the Presley, the Myers, uh, the Hewitt, etc. And, um, and the Sneeds, of course. And I pray for all of us to be mindful that whenever we come in contact with anyone, there is an opportunity to share the glorious good news that has been brought to our attention. Let us not hold on to this in a corner, but let us be lights to the world. And let us share this wonderful, glorious news that we look at today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dwight. We appreciate that thread as well. We are going to continue with where we left off. Um, it is uh, in John 14 and 31 is where our study is. We're at the last verse in John, believe it or not. 
14, that is. So uh, it reads, But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. <clears throat> so we have this verse before us, and hopefully you have notes. And we could refer to your notes. It reads, As we review the record of our Lord's brief time on earth, it may seem that he was defeated at the cross. However, when we have spiritualized to see, that cross was a place of victory for Christians. Quote, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through, whom, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's Galatians 6.14. Satan was defeated at the cross, and he, quote, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's Colossians 2.15. Instead of being humiliated and shamed and paralyzed in fear, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12, 2. So it may sound foolish, but it is true. But God's victory was won at the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. The cross not only accomplished the salvation plan of God, but it secured and advanced the Father's eternal purpose. So that's what we've been dealing with. This is what Christ has been talking about and introducing to his disciples, who would later become the foundation apostles and prophets for the church. So it's important that we come to the knowledge of these things. We'll take our time and and look at these verses uh, in as much detail as we can so that we walk away with some understanding. So let's do that with this verse. So we'll take a phrase at a time, see how far we can get. So it says, but he comes. So when it says he comes, he's talking about the prince of this world. We get that from the previous um, verse, verse 30. The prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on over me. But, so we know we identified that person as Satan. So Satan comes. He's the prince of this world. He's coming. What does it mean he's coming? Satan's already here. So he's, he's not coming from the standpoint of... Uh, you know, like the Holy Spirit is coming, and he will come at Pentecost. Satan has been here as the ruler of this world for a long time. So what does Christ mean that he's coming? So point B is coming, meaning Satan would attempt to defeat Christ with a series of major attacks, beginning with his arrest in the garden. So we, we covered a lot of this last week, uh, but I think it bears repeating since Christ talks about him coming and puts it into the new context of our verse. So if you look at his coming, specifically in John, if we go back to 13 and look at verse 2. So 
the evening meal was in progress. Uh, this is interesting because Satan uh, is here kind of reviewing and tracking what was going on. So the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to, to betray Jesus. So whose idea was it? Was it Judas's idea? Or was it Satan's idea? Well, it was Satan's idea that Judas betray him and this plan go forward. So we said that this was a series of attacks. So we stand at the precipice of this huge uh, few days of passion that will go for Christ. He would be he would be uh, arrested. He would be beaten. Now, this is uncommon. This is not like something happens every day for Christ. He stands here recognizing that he's getting ready to go into this, these huge trials where he will be tested and will, Satan will have at him completely. And uh, so he, he would be crucified. He would die physically. But he will be raised again on the third day. So he knows all of this. Uh, and... and so just to note, Judas is the signal of him coming. So in verse 27, we also see Judas mentioned again. This is after, as they are nearing the end of the meal, uh, Jesus answered, uh, well, how about we start at verse 25. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? This is after he says, one of you is going to betray me. And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, I hear some background noise. I'm going to ask if you could put your phone on mute if you're listening. And if not, I will help you. Ah, there it goes. So, Judas, as it says, since Judas had, uh, but no, oh, how did it go? Verse 27, as soon as Judas, Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So, notice, we have Satan there again, who goes in and begins, or he prompted Judas, but now he is influencing Judas. It says he entered into him. So Judas, uh, so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Uh, so, and it talks about why they didn't think so. But we're going to move forward just to note that those things happened. This is the beginning of those things happening. If we skip on to 18, right, 18, and we look at verse 2, now Judas who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas was aware of the where Jesus was going to go, and he comes with a contingent of soldiers, a detachment of soldiers, and uh, some of the officials and chief priests and the Pharisees, uh, and they meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. This begins the beginning of the, what we call the Passion of Christ. 
And a, a lot of this, Jesus knew. And it wasn't easy for Jesus to know all of this and yet speak as he did in John 14, 15, 16, even 13, right? 14, 15, 16, and 17, where he focuses on the church age and pleads with the disciples to believe that this is coming. And not only that, <clears throat> they're going to be <clears throat> the foundation of the church. So in Matthew 26, let's run over to Matthew just to note the pressure that was on Jesus, which we may not realize. So Matthew 26, and we're looking at verses 36 through 50. I'll read it quickly. It says, Then Jesus, with his disciples, uh, uh, to the place, uh, Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. So all the disciples were in the garden, but then he took, verse 37, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So this is, now we're seeing Jesus begin to feel the pressure of what was mounting upon him. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then <clears throat> he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them there. He left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So we do get an understanding of Jesus and the pressure that was on him. And now we're able to see exactly what was, was the point of this pressure. Jesus was saying, if there's a way, another way, for me to fulfill all righteousness and this salvation plan without me going to the cross, that's my will, but I will go to the cross. I will do what you will. So what we are seeing in this is Jesus's love for the Father. The world must learn that I love the Father. We're seeing this played out in Jesus's commitment, his devotion, and all of that, as we'll get into that more later. But the thought of that is, listen to, look, look at what he says. He says in verse 39, he says, my Father, if it is, uh, 
No, no, actually 42, he says, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away. And notice, the first one he says, if it is possible. Then he comes back and says, if it is not possible, this cup be taken away. Unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's resolved to doing the Father's will. This is not just, okay, whether I go over or across the street or whether I go on, stay on this side. This is whether Jesus is prepared to go down this dark tunnel of suffering, physical, and then that leads to where he has to stand as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he has to be judge for as a lamb sacrificed as a Jew he watched many feast days where they sacrificed animals it was the way but it all taught about him who was the lamb of God and he knew that the lambs there were no lambs that survived sacrifice but Christ would he, he knew he'd be resurrected but he knew he had to die so this was a tough time for Christ. And I'm hoping that when you're seeing him recognizing Satan coming, is Satan is going to put all of this into motion so that Christ will have to go through this. Now, as we already know, the end of the story, we know that uh, Christ will come out on the other side of it and defeat Satan. We know that. And he will defeat him by means of the cross. So, Satan's, this leads us to the point C. Satan's attacks were meant to defeat Christ, but in, instead, he was defeated. I think it was telling about who Satan was. We'll get into that in the next phrase. But he comes so that the world may learn. So we can see the victory won in this world. We can see it happen as we look back on it. And look at the scriptures and have the spirit of truth helping us understand. Imagine that our Lord went around doing good, casting out devils, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead, right? So if we go to, to Mark, just to, to talk about this, this is uh, Mark, and we're looking at chapter 6 and verses 53 to 56. You can follow me there. So when they had crossed over, this is 53, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside. They placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now Mark has a lot of stories and about the works of Jesus and how he went from town to town and healing and and you can pick your favorite healing stories. But one of these things, you know, I, I like this one because 
it talks about wherever he went. I mean, Jesus was plagued by people showing up sick and needing, needing to be healed. And many people, just if you think about the woman who touched the hem of his garment, and he didn't even, the woman touched, reached out and touched the hem of his garment, and Christ said, who touched me? And he realized that that woman got healed as a result of it. He stopped and paused. But just imagine here how many people, if they could just touch him, imagine that this man is the Messiah. This is what the Messiah would do. So there's a larger context in this. It's not just that Jesus was a good guy and went around healing people. He's talking about here. He's the king. He's presenting his platform in the world. And what it does is it contrasts the kingdom of Christ with the kingdom of Satan. In fact, it says that in Colossians, that we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son when we're saved. So when we think about that, it contrasts both rulers, doesn't it? So point B is the world can evaluate the character of Christ and the prince of this world, Satan, and see evil for themselves. So when we look in the Old Testament, you will see lots of places, and we'll probably read a couple, where it talks about Jesus uh, prophesied, would open the eyes of the blind, and and the death, you know, and all the different things that would happen as a result of him being here and things that he would do as one coming as the Messiah. So it talks about the character. He would set the captives free. He will, you know, all, he will cast out devils and demons and all these things that are binding people. He would free them from sickness and from disease and all, man, you name it. Christ even raised those who were dead. So this, this is all typical of Christ presenting his platform and presenting his character as well, what he was willing to do while he was here on earth as the king. So we can evaluate that. We can look at both rulers when it says the prince of this world is coming. Right? And in other words, the attacks are going to be fierce. But don't worry, he doesn't have any hold on me. In other words, the world is going to know that I love the Father, and we're getting to that verse, so we can see it as well. But that is what is on display, the characters of Satan and the character of Christ. Looking, and how do we evaluate them? Look at the works. Satan comes to kill and to, to destroy, to steal. Christ comes to heal and bind the broken hearts, right? to open the eyes of the blind, to... You know, when you look up healing and you see how it's all linked to the kingdom of God, then you realize two kings presenting their platform. So we have some confirmation of this with the testimony of John the Baptist. <clears throat> We're going to go to Luke chapter 7 for that. Luke 7 and <clears throat> verse 18. So John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect, expect someone else? 
when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, we know John the Baptist was languishing at this point in prison. It didn't look good for him. And Herod hated John. Remember, John is the one who called him out, uh, you know, about the wife that he had is not his wife and all these things. And John was calling people to task. And Herod did not like it, uh, especially uh, Herod's wife didn't like it. So anyway, uh, so, so Her Her John is in prison and doesn't look good. And Jesus is out here doing all these things. And John hears the news, but he has to ask the question. And he does. It's a very human question. At that very time, Jesus... So, so, so here it is. You'd expect someone else. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So, so notice the, the, the context of verse 21. Notice how that's stuck in there. Right? This, is, this is not what Jesus said, per se, but he's going to say it. But notice what Luke puts in there at that time. So when John asks this question, Jesus is busy doing the things that speak to his kingdom has come. That he is the king and he is presenting his platform. He's doing the very things that the Old Testament speaks that he should be doing. He's doing his job. Right? But John says, wait a minute. I'm, I, I'm here in prison and you know things don't look good for me here. So we know what happened to John eventually. But here's what Jesus replied, verse 22. Go back. And report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. Well, what did they see and what did they hear? Well, Jesus is busy doing the very things that he needs to be doing. Curing many diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits. And I mean, it didn't matter. He was doing it. He was doing the work. So, the, so this is what he told them to go. He says the, this, to say to John, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So this is Jesus' words. So imagine that. Jesus could have said, what do you mean, am I the one? Of course I am the one. Don't you remember you baptized me? Don't you remember? No, he didn't say any of that. He said, my words and my, my actions, what I am doing, speak to who I am. It, and not only that, it shows the love that he has for the Father's plan. That he has come in the name of the Father. So we, we see all of this and we kind of look at it as, wow, Jesus was a good man. you know. And you could say, in one sense, you know, how could... You know, Jesus did nothing bad. He went around doing good. And how is, the, how is it that the world would think that he is worthy of death? Not even censure or, you know, uh, you know, some light punishment. or I mean, they went to death. They accelerated it and went all the way to death. They said, this man should die. Because look, after Pilate punished 
Christ, after he flogged him and had his soldiers mock and beat him, then he still brought him out and said, okay, I, I punished him. Are you happy now? No, they said, crucify him. We want him dead. Kill him. Put him to death. Execute him. So nothing. And here's a man, as I said, that we read what happened in Mark. All he did was go around the countryside preaching the good news and healing all manner of sickness and disease. And, you know, the blind uh, you know, are seeing, the deaf are able to hear. Uh, you know, people, the dead are even being raised. And this man should, is worthy of death. All he could do is good. Now look, what does Satan do? He comes to rob, to steal, to kill, to destroy. I mean, this looking at the character. So while we, what do we see? We saw Jesus be cru being crucified on a rugged and cruel cross. What was happening behind the scenes is that Satan, his character was being shown, and Christ defeated him on the cross by what he did. Let's move forward. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father. So we talked about love quite extensively in uh, John 14. I think it was a theme even. So hopefully, hopefully you've come away with the understanding of what love is. And Jesus, and the first point is Jesus' love for the Father is linked to the Father's eternal purpose. His devotion, motivation, commitment, and willingness to suffer and sacrifice himself is the reason we're here today. And when we think about Jesus, when he says, I, the world must learn that I love the Father, well, he's getting ready to be tested. The world's going to learn by him, even though he knew that he was going to have to go to the cross, he went to the cross. He did the Father's will. Now, if you would ask Jesus, could we not could you not go to the cross and fulfill righteousness? Jesus would have said, okay, I will not go to the cross and fulfill righteousness. But that was not possible. There was no other way for the plan of salvation to be realized without Christ suffering in this manner. God loved the world so much that he, what? he gave his uniquely born son, his only begotten son. So, Point B, love is a product of sustained volition toward God. And love may be a mental disposition, but it is seen by our actions. And that's where it says in, in our verse that the world must learn that I love the Father. And what is he, how, do, how are they going to know that he loves the Father? And I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. That's the thought. And John 3.16 says it as well. And, and when it tells you that the Father's love is conditioned on him having to sacrifice his son. It's not just, you know, uh, I, love, I love you. I love you means I'm devoted to a plan. The Father was devoted to the, his plan to bring many sons into glory. So he had to sacrifice his own son in this regard. And then, we, we've covered this before, it's 1 John 3.16. If you like John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 says, 
this is how we know what love is. Right? I like if we it's very practical. This is how we know what love is. That's what we're talking about. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So it it, it is realized in action. It is not realized in just you know, bravado, and I'm this, or I'm that, or, you know, I have this station in life, or I'm a reverend, or, you know, it is realized in action, and you're doing what it is you're supposed to do. You, just like Jesus says, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Come now, let us go. It reminds me of what he said in Romans chapter 12, right? If you go, um, Romans 12, it says, verse 4 for just as each of us has one body and many members and these members do not all have the same function so in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others we're we're not independent of each other we we have different gifts according to the grace to the grace given to each of us if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So you could sum that up in whatever your gift is, well, go ahead and get to it then. Go on and start doing that. Don't just talk about you're this or that. Do it. That's, that's how it's seen. Doing. That shows love, right? What you actually can execute, right? Because you love the Father and you do exactly what the Father has commanded you. <clears throat> He's given you a gift. So get to it. That's the, that is the thought of this. So there's... Um, <clears throat> So it says, I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. So it is important to do things God's way. Um, That's how we have to see. Oh, wait a minute. Did I skip something? Yeah, I did. Sorry. We're moving forward too fast. So so point C of 3C. Let's just make sure we know where we're at in the notes. Me too. Peter didn't understand the plan and thought... He would use human power to execute it. <clears throat> so this is Matthew 16. Let's look at this real quick. He thought he was going to execute the plan, but he figured, well, I'll use human power. I'll just go through a couple of these scriptures to help us understand that point. Uh, so Matthew 16, 21 through 23, we, we've seen Jesus ask the question, who, who do men say I am? But eventually it got down to Peter telling him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 1621, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, 
you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter thought that he could get Jesus to, uh, you know, to conform to his human viewpoint of what and who the Messiah was. Jesus says, no way. Then he told him he wasn't going to go to the cross. Imagine if that never happened, like Peter said. And we wouldn't have salvation. We wouldn't be here today. Because Jesus would not have gone to the cross and suffered and died. Now he needs people to help encourage him of what's going to happen, not say it would never happen. And so where did that thought come from? That came from Satan. Satan influenced Peter into thinking and saying that. And that thought comes from him. So that is pretty clear. Uh, here's some background noise. Um, let's just make sure our phones are on mute. So, back to uh, our notes then. So, um, so the next verse we have is John 13, 37, and 38. So, let's look at that. John... We're, moving, we're going to move quick, hopefully. 13, 37, and 38. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Verse 38. Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Disown me means deny that you ever even knew me. Because Peter... In fact, that was the thought, right? Peter could have said, yeah, I, I know Christ. I know who he is, but I'm not one of them. You know, I'm not the, one of his disciples. He said, I don't even know the man, period. <laughs> Imagine that. I don't even know him at all. Talk about going from, you know, what, what you... Now, I just want to make the, the note that Peter was very persistent here he wasn't just saying that he was serious he, he would die for Christ that was but that wasn't what was called he was called upon to do so when you look at uh, we're going to move on to John chapter 18 and we see what happens well Peter has an opportunity to demonstrate something here he says uh, this is verse 10 and 11 then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has for me? Notice, he is going to drink the cup. Jesus, Jesus is determined to do the Father's will. <clears throat> he says, put your sword away. I'm going to drink the cup the Father has for me. Peter just did not understand. But was he courageous? Absolutely. He whipped out his sword and he cut off somebody's ear. Maybe he missed him, somebody said. But he cut off his ear. He was swinging the sword. And when you swing the sword, you don't swing to cut off somebody's ear. You might want to swing to cut off their head or, or to hit him in the head. Peter didn't understand, did he? So, 
But later, in point D, Jesus helps Peter understand what love is. And it's not love is not just whatever I want to do. Love is not what my interpretation of God is and his will. It is exactly what the Father's plan is. And how are you going to know what that is? The Spirit of Truth will guide you and lead you so that you will know what the Father's plan is. So there's um uh, there's that verse in John 21 where Peter is uh, asked by Christ after they caught 153 fish Peter went back to fishing and it was skunked until Christ told them throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some and as soon as they did it Peter I mean they caught long story short they caught 153 fish Jesus said to them, come, let's have breakfast. So they sat down and ate, and they were cooking fresh fish. But when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? When he said these, he's talking about all that fish. I don't know what that fish would have translated into in terms of dollars and cents, but... to, to catch that many fish was a great day for Peter as a fisherman. And that was his business. I mean, that was money to feed his family. That was money for household expenses, taxes, whatever it is he had to pay. That was a lot of money. So he said, do you love me more than these? He's talking about all those the fish and the business that it was, you know. So then he says, feed my lambs. He speaks to Peter from the standpoint of what his role would be, his gift would be. Again, Jesus said, Simon, well, first Peter answered, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. So we're talking about love and service, right? It's expressed in how you behave and what you do. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This is verse 16. He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. As a pastor, you have a two-function role. You have to take care of the sheep. You have to make sure that robbers and thieves don't come. You have to make sure that they're protected from wolves. You have to take care of the sheep. And, and not only that, you have to feed them. Make sure they are led to green pastures. Verse 17, the third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you. And lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So I could say that love is the proper motivation. It is a mental disposition that is revealed, as we said earlier, 
by commitment, right, devotion, your willingness to suffer and sacrifice. Right? And Jesus demonstrated all of this in his life. And there's a synopsis of it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. I'll just go through. But this is about how Jesus demonstrated his love. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That verse demonstrates Christ's sacrifice, what he did in love for the Father's plan what it meant to the Father. He accepted it, he acknowledged it, and Christ and the Father are glorified in this. So it says he loves the Father. He did love the Father. He did exactly what the Father commanded him to do. And that's verse the number four where we're going to look at that phrase and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. And I say, is it, it is important to do things God's way, according to his eternal plan, just as Jesus said in the garden. And we read those verses where he says, not my will, but your will be done. Right? We, we went through those verses and we saw how Jesus' commitment to the Father was realized, even if it was not according to his will. He realized that. It was the Father's will, and that is what he wanted to do. He loved the Father. He loved the plan. He realized. But he asked, was there another way? So, so we know, we ought to know, that Christ did not fail in this. So point B is imagine if we fail to follow God's grace salvation. You know what will happen? We will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. If people don't follow grace, if they don't receive God's grace salvation exactly the way it must be received, then they will be rejected by God. It's like it says, if it is grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's Romans eleven six. So Christ had to, to do God's will his way. He couldn't do God's will in, in the way that he wanted to do. He had to do it in the way that the Father wanted him to do it. It was important that he do exactly as the Father commanded him. Not 90% or close to it. Not some interpretation that Christ decided he would throw up there and hope the Father... But if you do it exactly to what the Father has commanded, then you know what the result will be. Point C, if Christ had to um, complete the plan exactly as he was commanded, we must receive the plan and serve exactly as the Father planned. When we look at 
Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, here we see ourselves in the picture here. Paul being the one who was the apostle leading out. He says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, and I'll include according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's exact, right? This is what God wants us to do. Are we here? What, what is our role in doing it? We are to do exactly as the Father has planned. Right? We are now on the earth as the church. And I like Paul's resolve here. It was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make it plain to everyone. Right? That's why we're here. So we already said that twofold reason where you got to bring many sons into glory. That's God's objective. But here for us, on the ground, we ought to receive salvation. Right? It's God's will that all men be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. So, uh, we have to begin to see things God's way. And realize, I mean, God is not just someone who can just do things any kind of way he wants to. He does it according to his perfect righteousness and justice. So when we see why he has to do things exactly, it's because he's righteous. We are not. So we can make decisions in the dark about what we think God will accept or do. But God has a plan that is fitted to his own particular standards. And he's the judge of whether or not we've done things. Like it says at the judgment seat of Christ, each one of us may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. So we have to make sure we see and consider God and his righteousness before we think about our own way. It's important that we do exactly, that we execute the plan, the way the Father has uh, commanded us. Now it's interesting in the world today we have, in the Christian world, many people don't talk about the mystery. It is not a matter of conversation for them. When here we have all of these scriptures that deal with the depth of it, yet it is ignored by most. And they'd rather talk about some miracles that Christ did as though uh, without the context of what is being, we discussed earlier, of what it all meant. And it showed Christ's devotion to the plan. Now we are in the plan. We have specific instructions. And what will we do with them? As Paul said, and make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. So we're at this last juncture here. We'll go through this quickly and then we'll have to end. Come now, let us leave. Right? So it appears that they did not leave the upper room at this time. If we go to 18, 1 and 2, we already saw that. John 18, 
So it says, when he had finished praying. So when did he pray? He prayed in John 17. The whole chapter was a prayer. So it says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley on the other side. There was the garden. There was a garden, and his disciples went into it. So we see the timeline and the events that happened according to the timeline. Jesus, when he had finished praying, right, he's still a couple chapters away from that. So uh, we know that he left at this time. And we know that he's speaking in John 14, 31. Still, he hadn't left yet. So point B is some speculate that Jesus may have left the room but stopped along the way to continue John 15 through 17. And some people have said that. Well, it says, he says he left, so that means he must have been uh, speaking to him right outside the garden or something. But it, it talks about when he had finished praying. So usually after the meal, and this is the Passover meal that they had in the upper room, this is where Judas, you know, went out and left there and to betray him. And then just the disciples were there. And then he had the discourse. Remember, all of this happened within minutes. So uh, I don't agree necessarily with that speculation that Jesus may have left the room with the disciples but stopped along the way. Or, you know, maybe it was dark out and he started talking to the disciples somewhere else. It just seems that they were at the meal, and he had this discourse, Jesus prayed, and they left. My reasoning is, at point C, he was at dinner, the Last Supper, and alerted the disciples and others that were there. He, there were probably others there, that it was time for him to leave very soon. But reading chapter 15 and 16 would only take minutes, and then he prayed chapter 17. So, when he says, come now and let us leave... He didn't take into account that he was going to pray. He didn't even mention it. So he didn't also didn't take into the account the couple minutes, the few minutes that it took for him to give the discourse in 15 and 16. So when you get a chance, take a little bit of time and read 15 and 16, and then you can read the prayer of 17, knowing that Jesus got up and left after that. Point D, it appears that it was one discourse not broken up into two or three in the upper room. Then Jesus leaves knowing Judas' betrayal is at hand. That's what he's, he knows is happening. He talks about the prince of this world coming. And he, knows he, he knows he's coming, but he has no hold on them. And this begins the climax of Jesus' suffering. First Peter, our last verse is 2.23. And it is when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So I would say we have come to the end of chapter 14 as we've looked at these verses. Is there more to consider in these verses? Absolutely. Could we glean more points out of John chapter 14? I'm sure we could. I'm sure there's more for us to learn. Hopefully this will be a basis of our understanding and, and that we have handled the word accurately.
So we've come to the end of John 14. Next week we will review and probably introduce John 15. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We are pleased that you called us from eternity past to be here at this particular time right now. We thank you for those who are here and have shared their spiritual energy to reason with us about these things. We thank you for Christ who did all of these things, who sacrificed, who presented himself as sacrifice for our sins. He performed the salvation plan flawlessly. And we are the recipients of it. Today, we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We thank you for such a great salvation that has been given to us, such a great calling. We pray that our lives will be worthy of it as we live in this world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 We will just have our benediction and close. May the grace of God surround you. May his light direct your path. May his spirit lead and guide you as the weeks and months go past. May your soul be blessed and may your joy be full of the love that heals like rains. As you obey his call, Remember most of you're a child of the King. May the peace of the Lord go with you. All right. Give you back the rest of your day. You guys have a great one. All right. You have a good one too.